Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end, I chat to authors from all around the world about their writing. I sometimes speak to people from the publishing industry or psychologists and occasionally it's just me. Just having a little chat to you, unscripted, which is what today's episode is going to be. And sometimes listeners send in their first pages as well. That's how this show started, was uh, people sending in their first pages of their novels. And I'd have a little look at them and I'd say, this is what I think is good about it. And this is what I think isn't so good about it. And I'd probably make scatological jokes while I was doing so. Um, So this is what uh, a type of episode I call the writing ramble, where I just talk unscripted unplanned not sure what I'm going to say and uh, it's not I mean that makes it sound like I'm acting as if it's somehow spectacular that I can talk extemporaneously Um, that's not that's not the spectacle you know Tim Clare doesn't plan a show Tim Clare has a first draft it's just because it's it's like a kind of diary entry really it allows me to talk about what I've been up to and it allows me to figure some stuff out sometimes like I don't I either don't have time or I don't have the kind of confidence or I don't have a big idea to kind of like sit down and say this is an episode where I'm going to come out and I'm going to make a cogent argument in favor or against something you know I uh, it's this isn't an opinion column these these episodes they're more like a kind of uh well rambly but slightly more equivocal I, I you know I quite I, I don't want to start the episode particularly by making a justification for its existence uh, I think you know the fact that I sometimes feel the need to do that says more about me than anything else but I quite like equivocal media I quite like things where there's room for doubt and vulnerability and being unsure you know like we the way we share stuff and the way things go viral and the way we share stuff on social media the way that the way that we construct a lot of argument is about you know you construct a case you make an argument for something you come in and you go hey did you ever this is the basis of like ted talks right these kind of ideas worth sharing they don't go well it could be this it could be that we're not really sure here's some stuff and you can kind of make your own mind up but there are pros and cons to it it's rare that those are ones that are you know that are shared by lots of people these ideas worth sharing what what actually gets shared are the ones where they tell a couple of anecdotes a couple of like entertaining anecdotes and they pin to that a couple of explanatory theories or thoughts or make an argument or say everything you knew about sugar was wrong or whatever the subject is and there's a stripping away there's a winnowing away of nuance to just kind of hit something and have a theory or a some kind of idea that has kind of cogent explanatory power uh, and and we hear it from an authority figure and we go wow oh now I feel like I understand that thing a bit more now I feel like I'm an expert in that thing now I feel like I understand something more about my brain or economics or martial arts or whatever it is that they're talking about um but there's a reason why those are 
TED Talks to a lay audience and not presentations to colleagues at a conference. And that's because that shit would never fly if you presented it to a group of academics. Because in academia, and there's lots of flaws with um, academic culture, but you do actually have to back up what you're saying with evidence. And you have to also make it clear that you're aware of to us or trick us. And the reason I'm, I'm kind of saying all this is because I've been, I mean, I, what I should say to begin with is, right, I think today's going to be my last episode of this season. Uh, I've really enjoyed recording this season, but um, I want to take December off to work on, and I know I've been sort of threatening to do this for about a year, but I'm really going to do it now, to work on the kind of 2.0 version of my writing workout. I'm going to do a sort of second writing course the arts council in the uk gave me a bit of money to do it and for various reasons that project's been delayed but i'm gonna do it and then hopefully put out the first episode on the first day of the new year as a kind of like fresh start thing and then continue putting them out more or less daily and we'll see where we go but that's my idea really is it not that people have to start on new year's day although i do think it's probably a good time to just start putting it out so people who are thinking oh, i want to you know start writing this year have got an opportunity right from day one if they want to but as you'll know from the previous course you can just do them whenevs um you're not on a treadmill but um so i wanted to kind of round off the season and um it's also because I've been working on this non-fiction book about anxiety and panic, uh, which, you know, those of you who listen to the show regularly will know that I, they're things that I suffer from. And, and these kind of writing rambles is the kind of stuff that comes out in them. My philosophy, general philosophy on writing, you, you can tell pretty much where I am in my cycle, <laughs> dependent on whether I kind of go, hey, come on, everybody get out of bed, uh, go for a run, get super pumped and do writing. Writing is a joy. Isn't life wonderful? Do your best. You can do it, guys. Or whether I'm kind of croaking to you like um, like so, like you found kind of like a dying druid in the in, in the sage in the um, in the in the ruins of um, in the in the in the blasted ruins that have been destroyed by the imperial army and i i hand to you the sacred crystal and say you must pass on my legacy <laughs> you you could tell you can tell where old timmy c is with his mental health depending on whether i think uh writing is is just ashes in our hand a kind of futile struggle against the uh, march of entropy or whether I think that we're all kind of like liberated uh, super beings who are part human, part eagle, soaring through the great vista of words, and that um, you know we're rapturously joyous to be alive. Um, I'm somewhere in between those two. I don't know whether I'm on the way up or the way down at the moment. <laughs> I'm, I'm semi-joking, obviously, but like so, I've been writing this book and. When I say writing, I mean mainly researching. Because when you do non-fiction, you often just write a ch chapter, like the first chapter, and then you send a chapter plan, and then you pitch it. So we're getting to that point now where we send it out and see if anyone wants it. Uh, so I still don't know if the book will come out. 
but um, I've been sort of finishing off that process and it's it's more work than I expected to be honest I was a little bit naive uh, because of course when you plan out chapters especially with non-fiction you know you're basically writing them to to know what the shape of the book is you basically have to write it so far from it involving me writing 5,000 words and one tiny little document that I could just bash out and go well that's probably what it'll be like I mean, the difficulty is that I'm a bit too sort of perfectionist for that um, to to just say this is good enough. And I would perfectionism is something that I still grapple with. It's part of anxiety, and you know, there's part of my brain that whenever someone says you should be less perfectionist or whenever I say that I should be less perfectionist, there's part of my brain. There's a secret sort of gremlin. That is wrapped round uh, my soul. That whispers to me, just nod and smile, Tim. Nod and smile. Say, oh yes, yes. But I will stop being so perfectionist. Perfectionism is bad, but that's for other people. It's not for us. You can't. You can't let them. You can't let them take away your perfectionism. You will be. You will be destroyed. Which is really funny, you know. Like it's it's really interesting how there's something deep inside me and it and it and it comes and goes and i think like i'm discovering that i can at least in the first instance just acknowledge it and be aware of it and say thanks for that uh and and acknowledge that it's trying to protect me uh you you it it's not necessarily super useful to just try and reach in and rip it out rip out the perfectionism I'm not sure it's very self-compassionate, really, but also there's just parts of you that uh, will will lock down. I've been um, I've been reading the biography. Well, it's kind of an autobiography, right? Like, but he dictated it to someone else. Um, he worked with a biographer. This uh, guy Hiru Onada. I don't know if you know his story, but he was a Japanese commando who in the second world war who they ended up he ended up surrendering on this little island in the philippines in 1974 and up until then he'd been continuing to fight the second world war um and it was only in 1974 that he finally admitted you know admitted to himself when they eventually got his he refused to surrender uh, and they eventually got his superior officer, who had been like a book, uh, you know, obviously the war was over. His superior officer had been a bookseller for like two decades. And they flew him out to the Philippines and he went to this island and uh, went out with this sort of young Japanese guy. Who had had gone to specifically to find Hiro Onada because you know it was known that he was still out there. He was this kind of Bigfoot style figure, um, but he brought this Hiro uh, Onada's superior officer out, and they like camped in a tent and and made contact. And eventually, Onada kind of came out of the jungle, and when he saw that it was his superior officer, um, surrendered his his rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition and his sword, which he'd kept kind of scrupulously clean throughout this period. And because when, you know, at the end of the war, you know, they'd had messages 
on this island. Japan had this uh, policy in the in the, in the sort of like in their explosive kind of expansionist part of the Second World War, where they moved to occupy this great kind of ring of islands in the Philippines, like thousands of tiny islands, but all ones that were big enough to you know hold a, a landing strip or something like that uh that would be kind of useful in air warfare uh on the basis that it'd be very hard and very costly and very tedious for uh, america to take them back uh but but the u.s did take the island that hiru and anada was back on he had been advocating kind of like their retreating into the jungle and fighting kind of like a guerrilla warfare against the u.s forces um but the command on the island didn't agree with him and wanted to fight uh fight a traditional kind of pitched battle uh he when when they lost um anada fled with some of his surviving uh colleagues and they got into the jungle and actually what, what a lot of people don't know is he was he wasn't on his own for most of the time uh after the end of the second world war you know they got uh, you know, messages saying that the war was over, that Japan had surrendered. There was an airdrop with some, but he decided that they were tricks. And, and you know, not without reason. Japan had used similar tricks, like they uh, j- this idea of kind of like aerial bombardment of propaganda was uh, was was not was not in any way. Uh, rare Japan had, uh, you know, sent done airdrops of messages to American soldiers during the uh, during the siege of, um, of of Bhutan and saying that they needed to surrender and encouraging the Philippines troops to uh, to defect so they could be uh, they so they could join Japan's. Uh, what was it uh greater east asian co-prosperity sphere which is you know what they like to call it which is such a such a terrible such a, it's such a terrifying dystopian name right you know that's covering up something pretty dark which it which it was of course wasn't it it was covering up uh, uh genocide and, and subjugation just a different type to what the uh allied imperial powers had been enforcing up until that time uh, but you know so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't crazy that he thought that these things were tricks but then you know he managed to stay on this island for the next almost 30 years uh, what he doesn't mention in his autobiography is that he killed three islanders while he was there he just doesn't he just elides that from his account that he murdered three civilians while stealing food shot i think he shot a police chief or something like that you know like he it's a very self-serving autobiography i should say um and he wasn't a particularly you know when he came back to japan he wasn't like a particularly nice character or at least you know he thought that japan had lost his way he actually talks about when he's he realizes japan has surrendered he because he's the two the two the two soldiers he was with um both got killed um, in shootouts with the police and stuff over the years. And so he was eventually on his own. And he he says, he said, he, he's, you know, he's, he thinks, did they, could this have all been, you know, did they both die in vain? 
And he's very reluctant to sort of let go of this feeling that he's in in the right. And he, you know, he came back to Japan and and became, you know, the darling of various right wing groups. These kind of like ne- neo imperialist military Shintoist uh, groups that thought that Japan had become soft and lost its way. And he's an apologist for all their kind of wartime atrocities. You know, as you as you might expect. So, uh, don't, please don't get me wrong. I'm not um, vaunting him as this kind of personal idol of mine. I want to make that very clear. Um, but he is also a human, and I'm always interested as a writer in humanity because I think you know we find it we find it everywhere, and it's easy to find humanity and to empathise with and to feel compassionate towards. You know, a, 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 your, you know, your own child, you know, a, t- a tiny baby, um, somebody suffering in a hospital bed. It is, that's fairly straightforward for us to feel empathy towards them. And I'm not saying that, that that's somehow, well, it's not, not, not a valuable thing to feel love towards those people. But that's quite easy to evoke. And I'm always interested, when I, you know, used to do poetry with... Um, the collective r16 they had a really great you know before i was involved in a lot of the stuff they did and this is people like luke wright and uh, ross sutherland both who've been on the show but they did um they had a, a tendency to like look for poetry in places that you wouldn't normally find it and see if you can find the poetic there so powerpoint presentations uh, boy bands motorway service stations we all went back to our ho- our hometowns. We did a tour called Local Boys Done Good, where we went back to like our crappy hometowns and wrote poems about them. And the idea was that if poetry means something, you know, then if poetry's like re, you know, can actually have it has something to offer, then we'll be able to find the poetic in things that aren't very or aren't traditionally poetic you know it's it should be easy quite easy to write a poem about love although I don't you know I should say I don't think that's true of course because so many people have done so that the obvious has been used up and you really have to like move into these kind of cracks and the non-obvious to be able to to do it well in the same way that you know writing hip-hop bars about how you're very good at rapping um isn't easy to do well because so many people have done it and so many avenues have been used up that to actually do an impressive 16 bars on how good you are at rapping you have to be really original and people keep doing it right people keep coming out with stuff that's just like awesome but it has to push but it pushes the envelope and it gets more and more elaborate um so in a way i suppose what i'm saying is we were actually deliberately lowballing it to make our jobs easy no i but it, it, i and this is what i think about hiro anada is that like there are you know you i was been reading about his sort of earlier like you know he's stationed in well he got, he moves to china and of course this is part of an imperial occupation right which he does which he kind of again it elides the fact that Ch- japan has moved in and after the uh the Mukden incident of 1931 in Manchuria, he kind of like elides the fact that he's now part of an imperial power. But he, you know, he he goes to the French, uh, he goes to the French quarter and 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 he sort of falls in love with dancing. 
and he listens to his little Victorola record player and he sings to himself at night and his brother's out there and he's his older brother who's a, a soldier and he's constantly sort of tapping his brother up for borrowing money and he says that he felt like he really wanted to be indulged by his older brother because his parents had been very very strict when he'd been growing up and there he'd been starved of affection and I, I think there's like moments like that where you just it's it's useful and instructive to be reminded that even people that people well that people who do bad things are human beings <laughs> because otherwise we imagine that there's a class of people over there who are doing bad things and there's us and we can be sure that we're not doing bad things because uh we're people and they're weird aberrant monsters and uh it just to me, it just keeps a little seatbelt around the old soul to to remember that people that that people, few people believe that they're the baddies. Anyway, what I wanted to say, I think the reason why I brought it up, apart from the fact that he's been on my mind a lot, uh, he's been on a lot on my mind a lot because this idea, you know, the name of his autobiography is No Surrender, uh, and although he is often held up by some as this kind of like shining example of like loyalty and grit as a kind of soldier right that this commando doesn't step down for nearly 30 years he holds the line until he's dismissed right that this is you know that this is absolute iron discipline so it's kind of like a form of bravery um i think what he actually does really resonates with me as an anxiety sufferer here's this guy who get who train who trains in a kind of war footing scenario you know that you're you have to be ready for any, anything he talks about when he does officer training for the first time and he says something like you know th this was where officer training was where i finally became a man you know my captain he's really he lavishes praise on his captain who did these kind of like weeks of training with him and he he, he says you know he, he taught me he taught me everything i i needed to know and gave me you know my spiritual training and he then goes on to say that his captain's favorite phrase was you're stupid and then he would slap the person he was telling off in the face and his captain says the worst disgrace you can ever uh, commit as an officer is to be unprepared. And I think that I recognise that captain in my own mental dialogue where I'm writing there's a part of me that slaps me in the face says you're stupid and says you have to be prepared he the captain says better to sweat in the training ground than to bleed in the battlefield and he's constantly drilling them in these banzai charges that the Japanese army in the second world war became notorious for where they would just do they'd just do suicide runs into like allied 
machine gun positions. Ones that had no chance of surviving, right? A whole like whole units just like like killed. Um but but also it gave them um, uh, you know it 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 also, you know, had, there was a there was a real intimidation um element to it. But mostly it was just a way of squandering young men's lives in this kind of right-wing militaristic suicide cult that had sort of built up in the country over years and years there was just a there was just a kind of like glorifying of of horrendous death but you imagine like building up this constant feeling of you're stupid you must always be prepared it's better to be stressed than dead it's better to be horrible to yourself than dead you know maybe this captain is thinking that it's like i've got to be nasty to these kids now these young men who are only in their early 20s right um i've got to be horrible to these young men now so that when they go out there in front of automatic weapons positions you know mount you know these kind of like like huge artillery pieces and snipers and soldiers with rifle who will not hesitate to kill them and their life could be over in a second um it's better that i'm drilling into them now this constant unforgiving level of vigilance and self-criticism than they just go and get shot and that's it that's it they're dead forever that's it that's your life's over better surely on a cost-benefit analysis that we're a bit mean to ourselves and that voice is in my head all the time and so when the when the messages come fluttering down saying it's safe you can come out now it's safe do you believe them do you admit to yourself that all this suffering you've gone through maybe is for nothing And do you let your guard down and risk the bullets coming in? You know, you've seen people around you get murdered. You've, see, you've seen people get shot and die. You might have killed people yourself. You understand what the stakes are, right? At what point do you walk out, hand over your rifle and say, okay, The war's over. What, at what point do you surrender in your heart? Surrender is... It, it, it has two connotations, doesn't it? It's like this feeling of like defeat and giving up and losing and a kind of like depressive slump. Like you're surrendering, you're giving up on yourself. You're, you know, surrender is capitulation. It, it's, it's disgrace. It's an abnegation of responsibility it's all those things and then there's this other in you know english there's this other connotation of surrender and submission as being i kind of think of it as being a kind of radical acceptance of reality that we're not in control and we never were and that we can't be And that 
there are many different ways to look at a situation. There are different perspectives. And we can't make ourselves perfectly safe. We just can't. And it's tempting to try. And if you've trained yourself, there was a time in your life where you didn't feel in control, where things weren't good, where it seemed like there was nothing you could do that could protect you. Or maybe you did hunker down in a way that protected you. Or there was a strategy that did work, you know. Maybe things were stressful for you at home, you know, your parents argued or, you know, your parents were always having an argue with, argument with rows with an older sibling and you learnt you could kind of step in and be cute or make someone a cup of tea and bring it to them and it would sort of think, oh, thank you, oh, gosh, what would I do without you? And it And it, and it just sort of poured oil on those troubled waters. And that worked, that kind of being a kind of nursemaid to people and going into that role slowly made your environment safe. But now you you don't, you know, you're now, now you, you're continuing it even though the war's over. Maybe there was a time when it wasn't safe for you to create, you know, when you put all your hopes into a story or you tried and someone mocked you or maybe you maybe you let someone down maybe you did make maybe you made a mistake and you either you maybe you couldn't have seen what was coming maybe you kind of did but you didn't believe it was going to happen uh, well, you didn't realise how bad the consequences were going to be. And, and, and now, and after that, you're like, I'm not going to ever let that happen again. And you go on to this kind of war footing. I would never survive five minutes in the military, but I can really understand what it's like to get the no get the notices, get an aerial bombardment of notices saying it's safe to come out now you can lay down your sword the war is over and to suspect a trick and to think you know what I'm going to stay here and to convince yourself that actually no 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 that isn't that isn't right it's funny how an announcement of safety, there's no one's going to shoot at you anymore, you're safe, can actually be what, what they call in the literature anxiogenic, that make, can make you go, ah, oh, actually that's scary. Because that's going to involve a c confrontation and a letting go of protections. These protections that are hurting me, right? And and when you get into that mode, one like I, this is something that has really struck me as well, is for a while I thought like anxiety is anti-creativity right when we're calm and relaxed we can take risks we can switch we can frame shift you know we can change our perspective we can imagine different worlds we can plan for the future now all that is true actually you know that anxiety makes it and self-criticism particularly the self-criticism that arises out of anxiety 
this self-criticism that is to do with error detection and error create uh, correction i've read some really interesting hypotheses on how people who have anxious rumination about the future um you know trying to kind of they want to monitor themselves for errors so they can not mess up so they can make sure that they don't make mistakes that one it makes it really difficult to do anything it makes it very hard to plan for the future um although it can help your reaction times in you know tasks where you have to like monitor something and spot and wait for something you know the equivalent of kind of like whack-a-mole style tasks it can help with stuff like that that feeling of being like ah on edge um but he's talking about, what was it, like a midbrain phasic dip in dopamine around the uh, anterior cingulate cortex. So basically that, mid, that phasic, mid, <laughs> phasic midbrain dip in dopamine is like, it means that dopamine goes down when you make a mistake. So your dopamine levels drop sharply. So it's like your brain just gives you like a little nipple tweak. It just goes, just every time you make a mistake, it goes, fuck you, don't do that again. And it's your brain's way of trying to train you to not fuck up. What a hot, that's the theory, right? What what a horrible, it says, well, you know that thing you did that was a mistake? Nah. And it just tweaks your nipple and you go, ow. And then the theory is that it's teaching you not to make those mistakes again. Well, that is a ultimately really, really maladaptive strategy because the best way to avoid those uh, dopamine valleys is to not try the task in the first place. It's horrible, right? You try doing the task. You may have experienced this with your writing and then you go, oh, oh, oh this, and you'll write a sentence. It doesn't read like a sentence your favourite author would come out with and you go, Ugh! and you feel this like just horrible feeling inside. You may not have really analysed what you're feeling. You may not have actually just stopped and just closed your eyes and felt it in your body and work out where's it coming from. I, you know, I did that for the first time a couple of weeks ago. I was actually, I just was like, I was feeling horrible about something, something I was worried about. And I was just like, okay. And I just tried to experience what the physiological symptoms were. And I had this kind of like, this kind of this tightness in my this kind of I can only describe it as like a kind of fuzzy tightness in my chest. This almost like hollowness in my in my chest, and it's interesting because as soon as I'm like, okay, that's what I'm feeling, or a hollowness in my chest, I can I can actually cope with. Like it's just a physio it's just info it's just physiological inf information. It's the conclusion drawn from physiological symptoms that I am a bad person and things are going to go badly that is hard to deal with the actual physiological things are unpleasant but they're a temporary and b don't have any intrinsic meaning and that that can be what's going on you know when we get into these kind of uh high error monitoring modes these reactive modes these self-critical modes um it's very difficult to get out of them they're very self-reinforcing because they watch 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 and occasionally they'll catch an error and you're correct and then that's reinforced and they will punish you and they make it very hard to plan for the future and they make it very hard to shift your attention to to imagine other ways of thinking 
because they're like don't do that because it's dangerous danger 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 um danger so don't imagine what if the war were over no 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 no. that's a mistake little zap and 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 this is i think that you know and obviously i'm using this as a metaphor for anxiety but i think it applies to writing as well because we get stuck in this but the reason i want to say creativity can be anxious is one look at paranoiacs right look at conspiracy theorists and look at the incredible the incredible level of creativity it takes to uh, anxiety is very good at, uh, at pattern reg- recognition and it's very good at i think bogus packet pattern recognition right but it's really really good at spotting links between things that might suggest danger um it's very good at f- filing through your memories and picking out the six times that someone seemed to be annoyed at you and working them into a story where people secretly hate you. It's very good at finding interpretations of behaviour and thinking, how could this behaviour mean that this person's annoyed at me? It's very good at imagining scary futures or dark futures or... It's it's actually brilliant at coming up with explanations. You think about like how anxiety works. If you're staying in a cottage in the countryside and then you lie awake at night and you listen to the sounds of the creaking house as it kind of cools down and then the noises of nature outside, you think if you're feeling nervous how your anxious brain and I'm not talking about pathological anxiety, just the normal kind of anxieties and worries that humans feel, turns those little sounds into narratives about burglars creeping in or monsters or anything like that. You know, when you're, when you're that way inclined or when you're walking home and it's dark and at night and you're alone, how a shadow or the sound of footsteps or any kind of noise, really, the wind in the trees... It can start working these elements into quite a cohesive story. This is convergent thinking, right? The kind of other side of divergent thinking. And this is only one model of creativity. But I I think it's important that not all creativity is about like coming up with different, you know, it's traditionally measured by like how many uses can you think of for a clothes peg? Well, that's one way of looking at um creativity but another really important way is you being able to filter your environment and you might i mean you might have done this right you look at you around your environment and you go okay if there is a zombie apocalypse now where would i want to get to what could i use for a weapon in my environment now where would i try and like what would what part of this environment would i barricade um in order to uh, protect myself where would i get food from you know you're actually filtering your environment not it's not expansive thinking right you are looking at stuff and you're reappropriating it you can do you know convergent thinking really easily by just like looking around your environment and trying to spot all the red things where are the red things and they all just start popping in your mind and anxiety does that but with perceived threats right whether they be social anxiety where you're watching to see if people are looking at you or whether they're responding to you wrong you are excessively monitoring uh, your internal state sometimes if you suffer from panic attacks it, it creates focus and it kind of cuts through 
uh, monkeys with the kind of like uh, signal to noise ratio in I think really interesting ways uh, but it's a it's a form of creativity because like to be creative you have to be able to discern and discriminate right you have to be able to say I want to tell a story about this and not about this um, Lord of the Rings has got this whole world uh, backstory and this like Middle Earth and this whole milieu right but like at some stage Tolkien had to decide like and you and you know I think there's an argument to say he didn't always do this with huge discrimination but like whose story is this and who am I going to follow and what bits am I going to leave out um you can you can look around your environment and take three items you know three objects and work out a story that connects those three things work out how they might be used in some kind of murder mystery you know if you have a lamp a mug and a step machine how could those three objects all be included in a story that's not divergent thinking necessarily it can be convergent you can be looking for links that connect things and that's the kind of like paranoiac mode that's the thing where you're going how how does this relate to this how what you know all of those things they come from anxiety and actually they are tools that we use in our writing all the time that are so essential so i i think one of the things when i start doing the course and stuff is is, it's going to be trying to sort of marry these two these two parts of our minds if if you if you worry about stuff you've actually trained we we can give that we can give that side of your mind a, a a task to do and we can we 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 don't have to constantly be working against the bits of ourselves that are like just worrying and they just want a bone to gnaw on you know like i i think it's one of the reasons that i get addicted to like mobile phone apps and like board games and stuff like that is my brain my anxious brain even though i like to think of myself as a creative my anxious brain likes looking at tableaus of resources and numbers it likes looking at systems and filtering this great swathe of like numbers and pictures and objects and saying where are the connections between these things how can i chain stuff together to create like a little economic engine how can i use this stuff it's actually a very kind of like analytical uh mode and I, th I think that's where a lot of you know that that's that's where anxiety i'm not you know i'm not 100 percent sure where i'm sort of like uh, whether i'm getting to a final point with this except to say i just feel like anxiety from what i've been looking at it does it has a has a function and a place and it, and it does do some positive things but when it kind of seizes control of the whole show it just starts to eat itself because in the end all our data sets are incomplete in the end there was so it i mean it's so dizzying how many different ways there are of looking at stuff you know i've spent i've read so many research papers i've sp spoken to so many academics i've spoken to really really well respected researchers and um there's not consensus and really really intelligent 
people have told me stuff that I've then looked up and found out that, you know, they've made mistakes, they're not true, or they're kind of just, you know, people smoosh together uh, stuff that they've, you know, repeatedly demonstrated in the lab and opinions. And they are not even sure they realise themselves what is just them. They're guessing what we're filling in with a kind of like vague heuristic of what we expect about the world and what's actually true. And at some stage, you just have to kind of go, well, here's my here's my best guess. And, and I guess that's that brings us back to writing that I don't know how you are with perfectionism. I don't know how you were doing with your writing at the moment but you like I've said before you can't inhibit your way to a novel you can't stop yourself from making mistakes when I do sort of like Dungeons and Dragons role playing style stuff with my friends we make up you know we're constantly making up a story we're constantly making up dialogues we're constantly telling this story and occasionally you know we're, we're using dice so you introduce this element of randomness there's this sense that the story is partly out of your control but a lot of the time you know characters are sort of talking to each other i'm describing things if i'm the dungeon master and saying you know you you know you cross you enter a, a room about you oh some often mention the footage which isn't you know, like it's 20 foot by 30 foot long at the eastern end. There is a thick oaken door with brass rivets in it. And uh, the ceiling is covered with a viscous slime that glows vaguely puce in the uh, faltering light of your lanterns or whatever. You can be much more tropey in uh... That's the thing, but you're freed up from so much stuff. You don't have to be original. You don't have to get every sentence perfect but just telling a story guess what it works it's like everyone has a great time and we all create and sometimes brilliant moments spontaneous moments arise out of that freedom of not really giving a damn and not holding yourself to the standard of perfection uh, it's a very fertile alive world that kind of collaboration and i must admit it doesn't help me to write when uh I'm imagining, you know, what my agent or what my editor will think of it rather than just writing for me. And it's been notable, uh, a theme that I've pulled out. And this again, this is convergent thinking, right? This is like me looking through the huge data set of all the interviews I've done on this show and then plucking out stuff that I'm kind of actively hunting for that doesn't necessarily there's different narratives you can pull out of these things and I think that's something that I'm really enjoying discovering with this non-fiction book is how we can tell ourselves almost any story we want with a large enough data set you know, I think it's 2.5 million research papers published every year you know these are peer-reviewed <laughs> This idea, that naive idea that I had, you know, only six months ago. This, you know, if you say this, this is a peer-reviewed study, that that meant that it was necessarily reliable. Of course, it fucking doesn't. Come on, Tim, get wake up! <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. And with that many, with that many studies published a year, you can find, pr you can find a study supporting pretty much anything, any position. You can cobble together. Um, fairly elaborate web of references 
saying this thing's true or that thing's true or look this thing makes you well or whatever um this thing's going to make you sick this is what anxiety is and all you have to do is elide all the other evidence that suggests something else or just doesn't agree with what you're saying but anyway i'm just saying that it's interesting um how many people on the show have talked about self-criticism being inhibiting you know that there's this sense of an audience being inhibiting and just writing for themselves or just writing with a kind of like fuck it um not only being liberate liberating but actually ultimately really connecting with an audience uh, i don't know what to do about perfectionism at the moment It's almost like it's almost like it's a really, really handy garden tool, like a really, really handy set of shears that happens to be covered with rusty protrusions. Um, and I, I, it's really useful for clipping my hedge, but every time I use it, I get tetanus. <laughs> it's like it feels almost not worth it, but it's like, but I really want something to cut my hedge. And I think acknowledging the utility of discernment and paring down your work and you know, like I, I sent off my chapter plan to my agent for this book and then it was and it was massive. It wasn't really a plan, it was just me sort of just just like me being a toddler, just like going and then and then and then and then in the email I'm like, Well really all I want to do is just write down the chapter titles and do a paragraph for each and this would be the thirteen this would be the chapter titles and then I'll just put a a paragraph for each i don't want to i don't want to write this long thing where i'm i feel like i'm just sort of wringing my hands justifying that there is actually a book here and i'm not tricking you and i and i just that was like self-criticism but actually i wrote out the chapter titles and it made sense to me and it was actually just in describing in describing this is what i wish i wish this is what i wish i'd done um in the email uh yeah that i I did I did it and it was it's useful for me to be able to say this is not what I want and this is there was a kind of paring down and these things are useful and it's it's hard and I still don't have the answer about what we do to keep the great blessings and jewels of convergent thinking and discernment and the ability to look at your stuff and go evaluate it and go is this where i want it to be nah you know it was always when i used to do live performance it was always there was a there was there was a stability in doing a set knowing your material delivering it and then just at the end of it even if it had gone well going what do i think about that what went well this line landed well this bit i wonder if i could change that it didn't necessarily feel like you were you know people who go no you should be kind you know hey just give yourself you know that was an amazing set you know people go that went really well not all the time sometimes it bombed i'm not saying that no, i was constantly having to sort of fend off people telling me how brilliant i was but people go that went really well and you go yeah i really like this bit this bit went down well i felt like maybe this section this like little few jokes that lead up to this poem could be cut a little bit or i felt like that didn't land as well and people would think you're being sort of refusing to bask, you know, to give you to give yourself a break. But it's not about that. It was about just the enjoyable 
puzzle of how can I optimize this thing it wasn't like going I'm a bad person it's like what can I learn from this what could I change what could I tweak and I found that quite sustaining in a way that didn't necessarily didn't necessarily mean that I was like going I'll, I'll never be perfect you never can the game's over when you've perfected something you know like that's actually often one of the least enjoyable parts of a board game for me is when you know if you you build up this kind of like little econ engine you play a game and you're collecting cards and you're building buildings and they all start producing different resources and stuff and like actually if you if a game's not very well designed um you end up having these explosive final turns where you're you're sitting there resolving card effects and getting loads and loads of different resources and i get ten thousand wheat now and 50 bricks and whatever and it's actually quite boring for everyone involved it's like okay i know i've kind of won this now there's no challenge and the challenge the kind of flow state as uh i've talked about before and i'm not sure how valid flow is as a as a psychological construct it's certainly interesting uh lens through which to look at things but um that optimal state of enjoyment is is where you're just kind of squeezing out points and you here and uh, and then if i do this i can get four points instead of three and and and, and you're really having to just like work the board and optimize that's how i enjoyed you know my art when i was doing live stuff and that to me is the optimal state of self-criticism and the inner critic can be this wonderful this wonderful kind of optimizing protocol right where you 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 look at your own work and you go how can i make this better oh if i tweet this word is that word could that word be tighter yeah bing and you just and you just are slowly just going through like a jeweler just kind of like setting these jewels and and cutting them right and, and polishing them up and you're, you're you're setting them in this in this great firmament of your work and that can be really really crunchy and satisfying it's like you're doing a it's like you're doing like a puzzle and it has that meditative feel of just solving something and improving something criticism doesn't have to be bad it doesn't have to be like you are this commando hunkered down in the jungle going on raids to steal stuff but the transition to this kind of safer mode can be hard you know what i found interesting was like hiru anada when he got out of the jungle you know the he couldn't sleep in the cot in the tent he was used to just sleeping on the ground for 30 years and it was uncomfortable to him to sleep in a bed it felt unsafe it felt wrong and writing accepting that there's modes of play and creation and that not all writing is performance not all writing is product you write stuff to teach yourself the story. You write stuff to explore. You write stuff to plan. You write stuff to find out what you think. The old lady who apologised for writing such a long letter, but she hadn't had time to write a shorter one. That's the thing, right? And I think it's really hard because novels if you just read the finished novels it makes it look like how a novel would be written because all these things use 
text right they all use words that planning uses text play uses text uh, kind of like creative exploration uses text um you can make the mistake of thinking that you're doing one when you're doing the other and we can start thinking that we're performing or we can start imagining an audience watching us and we can start evaluating something from the point of a finished novel and especially if we just kind of like there's some belief we have that we're not okay that privately such and such doesn't think we're any good that we constantly have to prove ourselves that's i mean look i mean i don't know why i'm hiding this behind the kind of agus of of we i feel like that when i write i still don't feel worthy i still don't feel like i i'm allowed to be a, a writer really I still don't feel deep down that people are going to like my work or that my that I do good enough. But the, a key thing there is that I just feel it. It's like, okay, Tim, I accept you feel you feel that, and that must suck for you. And you know, I hear you. But but don't. That's that is just a thought and a feeling. That's just like a intuitive sense. The evidence for that is mixed at best. Um, so so you, we can accept it as a feeling without buying into our uh, in, into that feeling because it's just a fucking intuitive sense and there's lots of reasons we feel things intuitively and um, they're not always based on fact. That's a very emotional bit of reasoning. But um, you can imagine when I feel that way how that that makes all the kind of like it's like how can we protect you from these uh, these people who aren't going to enjoy this and uh and sometimes you know you can you override it by just going fuck you is how i'm going to do it like i'm going to write what the fuck i want but that's a little bit bombastic and a little bit of false bravado what i'd really like to do and what you know i i don't i don't know the hu- the the big answer yet but i guess it's going to be partly practice but it's about just exploring stuff isn't it it's about exploring stuff and finding stuff out and picking your way through and um and and realizing how short life is i think it's not a morbid thing but just going like it doesn't it's not gonna it's not gonna matter a huge amount it's not gonna none of this there's no great prize that you have to kind of steer yourself through this these shoals of of potential mistakes to just hit this sweet spot there's all sorts of ways that it can go wrong so you might you might as let's just laugh about it and humor is a really good way of like dismantling some of this kind of silliness as well and go look if and if you were the best writer in the world there'd still be people who thought you were shit so all you need to do really is just write for you that's fine that's fine and everything and everything else everything else can kind of like will kind of like flow out of that but if if you're not writing with a sense of mischief and to delight yourself, then what's the point, really? So this is going to be the, this is the last episode of this season. Thank you for sort of sticking around. I realised that was a sort of like I say, it's a slightly equivocal little chat about some stuff I'm thinking about. But um, I think I'm going to kind of go away now, and then starting at January the first, I'm going to start this new course i don't know how many episodes it's going to be i'm hoping a hundred of just little daily 10 minute exercises 
that build up into this course, like the Couch to 80K, but just maybe informed by a few more things. I think like for, pe- for people, there'll be a lot of familiar content for people who've done the Couch to 80K. It's, it's sort of a, a, a revamp of that. Um, and it doesn't, it by no means replaces it. The, the Couch to 80K will still be there. And I'm not sure it's going to necessarily be an improvement, but it will be longer. Um, and I, I'm just going to f- feel my way through it intuitively, I think. That's what I did with the first one. And I think we'll do that again. I've got a bit more, a few more thoughts about the psychology of things. But really, I'm just going to try and put everything that I've learned as a teacher and as a writer into the course. And of course, now I've got, I've had hundreds of emails from people who completed the first course. So that's been useful to see what bits worked for people. Um, you know, I'm always very grateful for criticism. I'm not always very grateful for criticism. I'm I'm usually ultimately grateful for criticism sometimes initially i'm resentful of criticism but um i'm going to work on recording those and so i can get them out in a timely fashion and hopefully just put together something that can support people through developing a writing practice really for whatever purpose and whether they are complete beginners or whether they are published novelists who are feeling a bit burnt out, you know, I feel like we all deserve to, uh, one, work on craft, you know, the plenty of nuts and bolts stuff about just how can we write well, you know, how can we think about these things, some different ways of looking at our writing, so plenty of super practical stuff, but also just creating a space where we can train and where we can kind of be safe doing it and feel safe and... um just sort of renegotiate our relationship with it and it's a it's a never-ending process isn't it and i'm in uh yeah i'm in an ambiguous place with it at the moment uh uh, in which by which i mean it's just not perfect right that's all it means it's just not perfect it doesn't mean it's going badly for me it's just it's just not you know i suppose when i talk about these things i always feel the pressure to like go i'm in a kind of place of glorious rapturous production at the moment no i'm just you know working on multiple projects simultaneously is always a bit of a bit bits wriggly in the old headspace in any case so i'm going to put that together and hopefully i think often it helps me as well it helps me work stuff out it helps me sort of change my own relationship to my writing a little bit get that a bit healthier you know teach myself some things that i need to hear but hopefully it'll help you as well. Uh, and maybe it's going to hopefully reach some people who haven't tried the first one. And I think the other thing I'd like it to do is just build up a little bit more. The other one, you know, eight weeks is a long time. But it'd be nice to have a kind of transition into regular writing practice where I can just hold people's hands for a, maybe a tiny bit longer. We'll see. Okay, everyone. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here for season three. I can't believe how long the show's been going, and um, I'm just so grateful for everyone who listens. Um, thank you for all your emails. Thank you for your support. Thanks for you know going on the coffee page and dropping me a few bucks. Thanks for buying my books, and thanks for reviewing them online as well. Really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, of course, when 
I finished doing the course, I'll be back with season four with more looking at people's first pages, more speaking to authors and more maundering bollocks like this. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. You didn't tune in. That's a uh, legacy phrase from the uh, days of radios that had dials. But thank you for listening and I hope you have a lovely writing week. <laughs>